Good morning. This has been a treat to be with you all last uh, Lord's Day and, and today as well. Isn't it wonderful to come into the presence of the Lord with God's people, sinners just like we are, and worship uh, our God, the, the Savior, the one who's forgiven, forgiven us of our sins, uh, the one who's washed us in the blood of the Lamb. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to Isaiah chapter 55. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'll ask that you turn there. Isaiah chapter 55. I just want to give you a little bit of background so that you have uh, some hooks to hang the thoughts of this passage on as we come to read. And uh, after just a little bit of background, we'll, we'll pray and then we'll stand and, and hear God's Word. Isaiah 55, uh, obviously written by uh, Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God sent to minister to the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. This is in the days when the the kingdom was uh, divided, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom uh, of Judah and and Benjamin. And uh, during the life and ministry of Isaiah, the northern kingdom uh, was conquered and taken off into exile. Uh, and not uh, seen or heard from again. They're the lost tribes of Israel. They were those who, uh, some of them were killed and, uh, as they were conquered, and others uh, just simply intermarried and uh, ceased, to become, uh, ceased to be a distinct people. And uh, Isaiah ministers during this time and is, is called to minister to these people. And as he writes, he's not just thinking of the people and of his own generation. In fact, that's not in this passage who's primarily on his mind. You see, even when Isaiah was called, do you remember what God said to him about the people of his own generation as he would speak to them? What would be their reaction? Well, God told him uh, to go and say to this people, keep hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And so he knows the people of his own generation are really not going to respond to what he's saying. He's still speaking to them. He's faithful. He's doing what God's told him to do. But he, he knows that there are some people who will respond. And they're people that will live generations after him. 150, 200 years after his uh, ministry, uh, the people will be sent into exile and come back up out of exile, back into the, the promised land. God would be a faithful God to his people and not let them just simply uh, perish uh, from, from the earth. Uh, and, and as Isaiah ministers to God's people in exile, uh, this generation in the future, uh, you can hear the tone of the ministry of this man. And you can hear the tone of the ministry of this man's God as he speaks to them. From the very first words of this kind of section of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, if you know the, the chapter, you know that first word, how Isaiah 40 begins. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And that's what God's seeking to bring to his people, is this message of, of comfort uh, all through these, uh, these chapters in Isaiah, as well as uh, here in Isaiah 55. Uh, so if, I don't know if you think of, of prophets as kind of stern, fire and brimstone kind of uh, uh, ministers, but that's not the picture we have of Isaiah here. We see the tenderness of, uh, of a shepherd and uh, the tenderness of, of his God. But uh, specifically, how does God comfort his people in this passage? What, what need, what hurt of God's people is he ministering to uh, in this passage? Just kind of a question I want you to have uh, before you, yourself as, uh, as we read God's word. Let's stand and pray and then we'll read God's word. 
Let's ask our God for his help as we read his word. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your tender mercies to us. For you are the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And yet you are not the the God of the, the dead but of the living. You are God who speaks and who has revealed himself. You are the living God and your words even live today by your, your spirit as you work uh, by these words in our hearts. Lord, would you show yourself afresh to be the living God here in this room today? For we are your people, we are called by your name, and we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of our God. Would you, would you nourish us by your word? And would you show us Jesus? For we pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 55, this is God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear And come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Well, thus far, our reading in God's holy and inspired word, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Well, our focus this morning is particularly in verses 6 through 9. How is God ministering to his people here? Certainly he's comforting them, but how how is he ministering to their their hearts? Um, What hurt, what um, experience are they dealing with that he's he's ministering to? There's there's certainly a number of things that you might answer that with and certainly many ways that this passage uh, can, can minister to us. 
But thinking again of, of Isaiah, he's ministering to uh, the Old Testament people of God in exile uh, 150, 200 years after his life. And uh, if you'll think about the experience of the folks in, in exile, what was it like for them? Well, they went into exile and 70 years later they were brought up out of exile. So that, that generation that, was, that left exile in, in Babylon to come back to the, the promised land, what was, what was their perspective like? Well, 70 years, how long is that? Uh, 70 years ago, well, 70, roughly 70 years ago, uh, World War II. My grandfather's generation, uh, you all uh, certainly know people, uh, surely know people that, were, that fought in World War II or were of that generation, but uh, for the most part, that generation uh, has, has left us and is, is no longer. Uh, that generation had children, uh, those children had children, and those children had children, in some cases, those children had children. And uh, we, I don't know from, my, from firsthand experience what it was like to live in that era of, uh, of World War II. All I know is the, the life that I've lived, all I've experienced is that. Well, that's, if you can relate that back to the people in exile, they would not have known what life was like in the promised land. Uh, they would not know what that's like. To consider that their own homeland uh, would be kind of vague to them. Uh, they wouldn't really understand what that's like. All they've known for their whole life is a life of, of slavery, a life of bondage, and a life of, of idolatry. As they have, uh, before uh, going into exile, they went off into, into idolatry. That was the whole reason why God sent them into exile. And they continued to serve the gods uh, of, that, of that land, some of them. Uh, Moses speaks to God's people about what will happen if they forsake God as they are about to enter into the promised land. And he says this in Deuteronomy 4, 25-31, when, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. And you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And so uh, God anticipates what's going to happen with his people. They'll, they'll forsake him, they'll leave him, they'll go into exile, but there they will seek him. There they will feel the pain of their circumstances and be led by those circumstances to call upon the name of the living God and find him, truly, truly find him. And so what was God ministering to in his people? What was Isaiah seeing in those, those future generations would be their need? Well, certainly a sense of despair. Uh, what hope would there be as they're in exile to think that the God who let them go into exile would actually deliver them. Uh, this God that their forefathers served was, in their perspective, either too weak to save, or if he was powerful, he didn't uh, really 
have uh, the steadfast love to save. He wouldn't really pursue them in their sinfulness. Well, God assures them here that uh, he will certainly uh, pursue after them, and so he, he addresses their despair. He addresses their apathy as they would seek to just simply forget that God and go on with these other gods that are around them. And he seeks to address uh, their idolatry, despair, apathy, idolatry. Is that ever something that you feel in your own life, that you experience in your own life? Uh, certainly none of us are exempt from that. We all uh, deal with that. We know the words of the psalmist, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we've known what it is to even experience that ourselves as believers. But there's not a one of us that that's true of us all the time, where we're, we're hungry and thirsty for God. And so there's a a really practical question that God answers in this text for us. He tells us how to seek him. Uh, It's not always very clear how to just take those steps and to take ourselves in hand and tell ourselves the truth, how we might seek the Lord. Uh, And and he tells us here how we might seek him. We're to to call upon the Lord. Uh, We're to repent of our sins. Uh, We're to believe in his promises and we're to look at the stars. Uh, You'll find a a sermon outline there in your bulletin. You can follow along with that. So call, repent, believe, and look at the stars. First of all, call upon the Lord. Uh, Seek the Lord, verse 6, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Uh, That phrase, call upon the Lord, is a frequent phrase through Scripture, uh, meaning a number of things. But perhaps I think most often uh, that idea of calling upon the Lord is to call upon the Lord out of a, a, a sense of your own critical need, the critical need of the moment, and you call uh, upon the Lord. Uh, I think that's the, that's the way it's used first in the Bible, uh, a cr- uh, out of a, a critical or chronic need. Uh, we find this in Genesis 4:26, the last verse of that chapter of Genesis 4. To Seth also was born a son, uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think when you read through the Bible and you come to that verse, sometimes it's easy to, to think of that verse as just kind of a throwaway verse. Oh yeah, I'll just make a mental note, religion. There's a case of religion here on earth. Um, but that's not really what the author's getting across there. What's happening in Genesis 4? What's happening in Genesis 3? Well, there's a softball question. What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. Okay, so Adam and Eve, they're in this perfect existence, walking perfectly with God. Uh, They don't know anything of pain. They don't know anything of the fall or of sin. And and all that is disrupted by their sin. And they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And and then you have Genesis 4. Uh, What what takes place there in in Genesis 4? Well, uh, the curse at the end of uh, of Genesis 3. And then uh, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. What do they do? Well, Cain kills Abel. Uh, and, uh, and there's, there's a poignant experience of the brokenness of this fall. It's not just something uh, that you hear just in word or in concept. This is something that they've, they experience there. Uh, so Cain uh, kills Abel. And then you have just a little bit later, after the Cain and Abel episode, you have this guy named Lemech, and he sings a song. Remember what the song's about? He's boasting about his murders, and he's boasting to his wives. Uh, and, uh, and so you see, again, this idea of, uh, of the fall, uh, the curse. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Lamech uh, sings his song. And, and then you find this uh, just after Lamech's song. Uh, speaking of Eve, uh, 
she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And, and the author is trying to bring up before your attention again and again, things are broken, and the people who are experiencing this brokenness are experiencing it poignantly. Uh, how crushing would that be if in your own lifetime you had known Eden, and then you experienced the things described in Genesis 4? Uh, how, how much would that tempt you to despair? Uh, and it's in that circumstance that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It is the, the, the need of the circumstances that drive uh, God's people, uh, that drive all of us to, uh, to seek after the Lord. And that's, that's really the idea that's here in this text as well. Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. What is this thirst that Isaiah has in mind, that God has in mind? Well, that thirst is an experience of the brokenness of your circumstances that drive you to, uh, to, to long for something better, uh, to, to recognize this is not the way that things ought to be. Now, how many people who have lived in this world have experienced life as broken? Is there ever any exception? Anyone who's ever lived on the face of this earth? Everybody experiences it broken. Je- Jesus himself experienced this world as a broken and fallen place. And it's, so it's, it's out of this sense of, of brokenness that we're to call upon the Lord. And so this is, this is by the way, a, a bridge in our witness. As we're speaking with someone, we know right away, even if they're a complete stranger to the church, never stepped foot in a church, we know right away that we have something in common. We know this experience that life is profoundly broken, and not just on an academic level. We know this in our own experience where it's gotten our attention. Um, and so it's out of this experience. This, this is supposed to come, uh, sink into our heads so that we call upon the Lord. It's, it's, it's not a hard concept. It's something my two-year-old gets. When he's hurt, he says, I have an owie. And he calls out to his mama. Uh, all of us can grasp this. This is not a, a complicated thought. So it's calling upon the Lord out of a sense of, of uh, dependence. Uh, and so we should appeal to that, that universal human experience and calling on the Lord is taking that next step of not only, not only thirsting that things that are broken would be made right, but to recognize I can't fix those things and there's only one who can fix those things. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his son, uh, who can fix what's broken. And so call upon the Lord with, uh, with dependence is the first thing we're to see here. But then also call on the Lord, call upon the Lord with hope. Notice how it's put for us in the text. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Where do you see the idea of hope there? While he may be found. Uh, He is near. The text holds that out to us, that there is this hope. There is this genuine invitation uh, to God's people that he will be found if they would but seek him. He's not teasing us. Uh, He's saying genuinely, truly, that... uh, that he will be found by us. Uh, and so he gives this uh, invitation to, to, to search for him and to find him. He, he reveals himself in Scripture. God makes himself available to the whole of humanity in the gospel, and he may, in fact, be found. He calls, to us, calls us to himself with all kinds of arguments, all kinds of pleadings. We've just looked at one in, in this idea of dependence. He calls to us out of the argument of the brokenness of this world. See, it's broken, and you need your God. Uh, you can't make this all by your, yourself. 
Uh, and so he makes this, this argument of our, of our brokenness. Just a little bit later, we'll come to this idea of repentance of sin. It's not just the brokenness that's out there. It's the brokenness that's in here that compels me to seek God. Uh, things are not right, and I can't just say it's my wife's fault. Uh, it's me. Uh, it's my fault. Um, and so he, he calls us to, to call upon uh, the Lord with multiple arguments. He shows us himself. This is the God who spoke into nothing and made everything. And yet he condescends to have a relationship with us and to, to show us who he is. Uh, God is, is so vast and so great, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his uh, being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Uh, who can fathom uh, the depths of God? Uh, and many people can think of that as an argument for the, uh, to think that God is just not knowable. But that's not true. We'll never know God fully, but we can know him truly. And he has revealed himself uh, in his word. So he shows us himself in many ways. He shows us his nature, uh, just like we thought about last week. As he reveals his nature to Moses, he puts his hand over the rock that Moses is in. He passes before him and he tells Moses, he shows Moses what he's like. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Uh, when God wants us to know what he's like, he's saying he's merciful and gracious. He's approachable to sinners that we can know him. He shows us his character, his grace, his holiness, his gospel, and he labors to get those points across. God may be found, and so do not despair. Uh, And yet he's not just saying this to his people. As we read through scripture, we find that this is the message that's said to everyone. God may be found. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to the Athenians. What's that audience like? Are they a churched group? It doesn't get more pagan than the Athenians, right? Uh, they've got a god, for, a statue for every god that you can imagine. And because they think they might have left one out, they've got a statue for the unknown god. Uh, just in case they, they weren't pagan enough, they've got another, another god there. Um, and so Paul is speaking to them and, and he's telling them about this, this god. And he says, And he, may, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. To tease them? No, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, if Paul can say that really and truly uh, and not be inaccurate, if he can say that truly and accurately to a group of pagans, how much more is that true for you who find yourself seated in a church on a Sunday morning? We have God's word and his gospel in our ears all the time. He is not far from each one of us. And so none of us can, uh, should despair about uh, the Lord. Uh, we can call upon the Lord in hope. Calvin comments on this, the same verse this way. He says, uh, he says he is near when he opens the door and gently invites us to come to him. We do not need to seek far or make long circuits, for he exhibits himself to us in his word that we on our part may draw near to him. And so we can, we can hope in the Lord. We can hope in, in, the, in his promises, uh, his very promise that he may be found. Hebrews eleven six, 6, in that faith chapter, we're, we're told what faith is. <clears throat> Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he what? He rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is his promise to you. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. You seek the Lord and you will find him. Uh, He rewards those who seek him. By the way, what is that reward that he gives them? It's himself, right? That's that's what we seek. And so he, he gives us the very thing that we're seeking after. So he gives us himself. 
So call on the Lord with this sense of hope, the sense of dependence, but also with a, a sense of urgency. The text says uh, not only that he may be found and that he is near, where do you see the idea of urgency in verse 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What does that imply? That there may be a time when he won't be found and that he won't be near. Certainly that's true at the day of death and of judgment. Uh, for those who have uh, turned away from the Lord, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he will not be found and he will not be near for all eternity. That is the sad state of their future, uh, for, of their eternity. Uh, that's what makes hell hell, is that God is not there in his gracious presence. He will not be found. He will not be near. Uh, and there can be even foretastes of that in this life. Uh, this is what Scripture holds out to us in, in many ways. Uh, when we, when it, we see the idea of, of grieving the Holy Spirit, uh, there can be this sense where uh, somebody has the experience of God's Word and God's Spirit working in their heart, but they reject that Spirit. Uh, they reject God's Word. And eventually, uh, after so many rejections, God just simply uh, takes away His means of grace, his, his Word from them. They might even have that Word in their ears, but that word no longer moves their hearts. Uh, we've all experienced what it is to have our hearts burn uh, within us as we hear uh, God's word. Uh, but it's a, it's a frightening thing to imagine. What would that be like to come to a stage in your life uh, where God didn't speak to you in his word? It's a, a frightening thing. And so there's this, there's this urgency in this call. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Uh, seek him while he uh, may be found, uh, were to call upon uh, the Lord. This is the, the very thing that happened to the people that Isaiah is ministering to. Go and say to this people, God says to Isaiah, keep hearing but do not understand, keep seeing but do not perceive, make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And so God wants us to understand this urgency that's there. He's in grace holding out to us. Don't let this happen. It's very avoidable. All you do is just simply respond to the word of God you hear today. Don't put it off. Uh, this is an urgent call to call upon the Lord. So we can seek the Lord by calling upon the Lord, recognizing the brokenness of our circumstances. And we can also seek him uh, by repentance, uh, repenting of our sins. Everyone experiences the fall. Everyone experiences life as, as broken. And everyone at some level experiences the fact that the brokenness of this world is not just the things that happen to me. It's not just the things that are out there in the world. But at some level, everyone recognizes part of what's broken is, is in me. That I'm part of the, the problem. And, and this is what we're, we're called to here is this, is this call of Repentance. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. And so we're called to, uh, uh, to forsake sin. This is, this is the idea of the shorter catechism that we looked at. Uh, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin Turn from and unto God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And so let the wicked forsake his way. That's the idea of having a grief and hatred for your sin. Uh, having a grief and, and hatred uh, for your sin. A true sense of your sin. The, the things that you do in life, the ways that your sinful heart shows itself in life, 
uh, that these things are truly sinful uh, and you're to, to join God in his perspective on that sin. He hates sin. He hates it with a, an infinite and perfect hatred and we're to join him in that hatred of that sin. So forsake your sin. Um, and then we're also to see that the guilt of sin is no reason to avoid God. Uh, it says in the Shorter Catechism, with an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. What, is, what does that word apprehension mean? Uh, does that mean you're, you're apprehensive about God's mercy? You're kind of worried about it? Uh, what does it mean to have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ? Well, it's the same idea as if, if the, you hear the authorities apprehending a suspect. They've laid hold of the suspect. They, they have him in custody. They, they have laid hold of that suspect. And so when you think of an apprehension, the mercy of God in Christ, it's clinging to that mercy, uh, understanding it and, and leaning upon it, apprehending that mercy. Well, where do you see this idea that guilt of sin is no reason to avoid God in verse 7? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon well, it's that he may have compassion on him, that he, he will abundantly pardon. Why does God and Isaiah go on to say what's going to happen once you repent and turn to God? Well, he wants us to know the freeness of that forgiveness that's there for us uh, and apprehension the mercy of God in Christ. This is the empowerment that we have uh, to repentance. If we didn't have any assurance that there would be forgiveness for us, nobody would repent. Nobody would, uh, would repent. Here is this empowerment and encouragement for uh, repentance. Christ is to be our only boast and the one who enables us to face uh, the truth unafraid. Calvin says, man cannot be led to repentance in any other way than by holding out assurance of pardon. What would it be like if somebody had a sense of their sin, they're overwhelmed with the guilt of their sin, but they didn't have any sense of the mercy of God in Christ? Would that be repentance? Could it be? Uh, here's an illustration. Judas Iscariot. He betrays the Lord Jesus. He gets money uh, in return for that betrayal. And then what does Judas think about that? Does he approve of his own actions? He says, I've sinned, right? He's, he's even grieved by it. It certainly appears that he's deeply emotionally moved. He's grieved by his sin. And he even goes and throws the, the money they received back into the, uh, into the temple. Is that repentance? Did Judas apprehend the mercies of God in Christ? No, because what did he go and do? He went out and hung himself. You see, what we understand in the idea of repentance is if, if we come to this point where you think, I have sinned so much that it's just too good for me to lay hold of God's mercies in Christ, to, to believe in God's forgiveness, I have to kind of beat myself up over this a little more because otherwise I won't really hate my sin. Uh, really, what we're doing, instead of running from sin, we're actually running to sin. There's no other possible outcome in your life than that sin should be there more in the future if you reject God's mercies. No matter how guilty you are, this is the way we flee from sin, sinners. It is by clinging to God's rich and abundant and beautiful and sweet mercy, though we don't deserve it. There's never been such a thing as a sinner who's clung to the mercies of God who deserved it. None of us will ever do that. And so this is the way that we can run from our sin is, is having a sense of God's mercies for us. For he will abundantly pardon. He will have compassion upon us. It is God's promise to us in his word. And so forsake your sin. Uh, guilt is no reason to avoid God. 
And then uh, it uh, is to forsake our, our ways is the, um, the wording of the text here. Let the wicked forsake his ways. What's this idea here? What are our ways? Well, it's our, our track, record, track record. It's all the things that we've thought and said and done, the attitudes of our hearts, our actions towards others. And when we consider our ways and all the things that we've done, and we consider it in light of God's word that kind of puts that into focus for us, what, what we're doing is we're, we're called here to put into focus all the ways in which we have not loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and the ways in which we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. That's a summary of, of God's law. And it shows us uh, the ways that we have uh, not loved God or others, but it also shows us the ugliness of our life. Uh, and so let us forsake, uh, let the wicked forsake his ways. Now, who of you have done that? Anybody been successful in loving God with all of the heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving their neighbor as their self without ceasing? None of us do that, even for a day. Perfectly, And so what's being said here in the text, let the wicked forsake his way. It's not as though this is what you have to do before you can be saved, what you have to do before you can be forgiven. This is really a, a sense of, um, of desiring uh, to put away sin. You, you long that sin would be out of your life, not that you're capable of, uh, of having that sin absolutely put out of your life. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his, his thoughts. Uh, repentance must be genuine in, in the catechism with a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. There's a genuineness to the repentance. Uh, it must be uh, genuine. When you think of uh, the idea here to forsake your thoughts, uh, is that easy or is that hard? Uh, I think of James. In the book of James, he tells us that if anybody can tame his tongue... He's a perfect man and able to keep his whole body in check. Uh, he's a perfect man. Able to, he can do anything. Um, is that possible? Why, why is it hard for us to keep our tongues in check? It's because our tongues are the messenger of the heart. And we can't any more control our tongues than we can control our heart from which those, those words spring and those thoughts spring. Can you change your heart? Um, Jeremiah puts it this way. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Excuse me, James is saying this. Uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, Jeremiah. O Jerusalem, wash your hearts from evil that you sh- may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? It's as if James and Jeremiah and, and really Isaiah are holding out to us uh, that we have to have... We have to change our hearts. Can you change your heart? I can't change my heart. None of us can change uh, our hearts. We're responsible for our hearts. We ought to have different hearts, different desires, but we can't change our hearts. Um, And so repentance is a, a change of heart. We cannot tame the tongue because it's the messenger of the heart. How much less can we tame our thoughts? And it's as if God is telling us to be be born again. Can you make yourself be born? Uh, can you give yourself a new heart? Well, we can't do that. Well, what, is, what does the catechism tell us repentance unto life is? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. That is, it's a gift. I'm responsible for my heart, yes, but I am absolutely 100% dependent upon God to change my heart. I'm dependent upon God to, uh, to change my heart. 
uh, repentance is then when we see all these things together. It's a recognition of our sin. We, I think we, when we think of repentance, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. It's a recognition of our sin. But it's also a recognition of our hearts as the fountain of the ugliness in our lives. Uh, that's part of what our repentance is to be. And it's a recognition of our dependence upon God, a seeking after God's grace to address both of those things, uh, both my, my sin and the heart from which it, it flows. And so we're called to repent. If you find yourself uh, in, in a situation where you're far from God and you think, well, how can I be closer to God? Seek him. Seek him by calling upon him and seek him by uh, repenting of your sins. And then believe in his, in his promises. Believe in his promises. Uh, believe in God's compassion. We can be assured that God will act tenderly and redemptively towards us in our sin. Our agreeing with God and what he thinks about our sin goes hand in hand with God compassionately sympathizing with us in our, in our brokenness. Uh, here's the sinner. He's urged by Isaiah, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. This is why God wants us to repent, that he may have compassion upon us. And so believe in God's compassion. And believe in the abundance of God's pardon. His pardon. Psalm 103 verse 11 says something very similar to our text. When it talks about the heavens in the text, well, there's something similar about God's pardon in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west. If you travel north, you will eventually be heading south. You'll cross the North Pole and you'll be heading south if you keep going in the, in the same uh, trajectory. But if you travel east, will you ever be traveling west? How far is the east from the west? It's infinite. That's the picture here. As far as the east is from the west, so, uh, so, much, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is God's pardon. Uh, I, I love what, what Craig said earlier about, uh, in some small measure, grasping the mercies of God. And, and this is the, the picture. It's as far as the east is from the west. It's the heavens that are there before us. I, how many of us know how big the heavens are and the universe is? Uh, we can see maybe the, the scientists can tell us what the furthest visible star is, but we don't know exactly how big the universe is. Uh, we know so very little, and it's just such a small grasp of how big this universe is, and yet that's the picture of God's mercy for us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, His infinite mercy is, is for us. And so believe in His promises. If you are to seek God, you must grasp this mercy. You must grasp His compassion and His pardon. And then finally, look at the, uh, at, at the stars. Uh, look at the stars. Compare yourself with God is really what we're called to in verses 9, uh, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Compare your, yourself with, with God. When you, one of the things that I, I have as a goal uh, after studying this, this text uh, we live here in the, in the low country. We live close to the beaches. Um, I have it as a goal to at least once a year make it out to the beach at night and walk on the beach at night and uh, walk barefoot uh, and see the, 
walk into the water and see the phosphorescence in the water as you stir the water and, and look up at the stars on a cloudless night. Uh, the beach because, uh, well, there's no lights beyond the shore and uh, you can see the stars much more clearly out there. But take time to go out there and to look up at the stars and then to have this verse uh, before me. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And as I'm standing there looking at the stars, you can, you can take this up as your own homework if, if you wish. Uh, as you stand there looking up at the stars, thinking of, of this verse, have you ever asked yourself, looking up at the stars, why did God make all those stars? I mean, how many are there, really? You'd think in, in modern science we'd be able to count them, but we can't count them. We can guesstimate. The, the guesstimation that I've heard is in, it's in the octillions, is, to, is how many stars there are. Um, and, and how vast the heavens are, how vast the stars are in the universe is. Uh, I think it was recently they, they've pinpointed a star that's the furthest visible star as being five billion light years away. Uh, I, I just can't comprehend that. Uh, that's not even measured in miles. That's, that's in how far light travels in a year, uh, which, which is also beyond my, my comprehension. Uh, five billion light years away, and it's in a galaxy that they say is 13 billion light years away in its, in its furthest reaches, just by, by uh, guesstimation and calculation. Well, why did God make all those stars? Let's just give us a picture of himself. Uh, he created them billions of light years away, and it gives us a visual illustration of infinity and a, a visual illustration of God himself. It shows us the profound difference between us and God. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we think about the star that's five billion light years away, it's not measured in miles. Everything we have here on earth is measured in, in miles. We have distances that we measure it by. But why don't you measure that star that's five billion light years away in miles? I, would it break your calculator? I don't know. It, it, it'd be beyond comprehension. To, it's not a number we can, we can uh, easily say. Uh, it's, it's so far beyond our experience here on earth. So vastly beyond what we experience here. And that's what God's communicating to us about himself. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. There is a profound difference between us and between God. And then what's being said about that profound difference? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, higher than your thoughts. That is to say that God's ways are immeasurably better than our ways, that I should desire God's ways instead of my own ways. And so we're to desire God's ways is immeasurably better. And then desire to be near God and to uh, enjoy God. Desire to be near God and to enjoy God. This is, this is what we're called to, to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. Uh, the great and grand focus of this text is not your sin. It calls it to mind. We're to understand that we're sinners. Uh, the great and grand focus of the gospel is not your sin. You have to understand your sin to understand the gospel, but, but it, that's not the grand focus. It, it's not even the atonement that's the great and grand focus of the gospel. Atonement is absolutely essential. You get rid of that and you get rid of the gospel. But that's not really the point of Jesus shedding his blood. Why did Jesus shed his blood? It's not just so that we can be, have our sins atoned for. It's to, to do something. What's he doing by shedding his blood? He's bringing us to someone. He's bringing us to God. 
That's the great and grand focus of the text. That's the great and grand focus of, of this whole book. It, it, you, if you take out the fact that the gospel brings us to God, you would not enjoy reading this book. The very thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there. You can be as forgiven and as righteous as you can imagine in heaven, but if God is not there, it will not be a good place to be. The great and grand focus of this text is God himself. And so we're to hunger and to thirst for God himself. Uh, God says to return to him, to seek him, to love him. The atonement's beautiful, but only because it brings us to God. And the Bible is great, but only because it shows us Jesus. You take Jesus out of the Bible, and what do you have? You've got an ugly book. You've got a book that's beautiful in its perfection. You've got the law of God that perfectly searches the heart, but it leaves you in utter, complete, complete despair. And so desire to be near God and to enjoy him. That's the great and grand focus of this text is God himself. Desire the Lord. And so Isaiah well says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your tender mercies to us that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, that you do not uh, forget us, that you do not leave us to ourselves and abandon us to just simply go our own way, but that you plead with us in your word to seek after you. Lord, we pray that we might not be those who just simply are hearers of the word and not doers, who though who, seek, uh, who see ourselves as in a reflection in a mirror and then just turn away and forget what we've seen but, Lord, is hearing how we ought to see you, seek you uh, in your word today. Lord, we pray that that might be a reality in our lives, that we would hunger and thirst for you, that we would delight ourselves in the living God. For we pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.